scripture is Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. The law in force. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. We saw last week the meaning of the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment is a part of the law. Therefore, the common interpretation that covet means simply to desire is clearly and obviously false. The law cannot govern desire unless it becomes action. The law deals with action. We saw then also that the meaning of the word covet means to desire and to take, to expropriate what belongs to another. In this sense, it is within the province of the law. The word covet in and of itself, we also saw, is not necessarily evil in its connotation. St. Paul declares covet earnestly the best gifts, that is, aim hard for, strive to gain, to take, desire and take the best things in life. Covetousness is evil when its object is morally wrong. We have no right to covet our neighbor's wife, nor his house, nor anything that is our neighbor. In the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord applied some of the laws of Scripture to the heart of man. The law has requirements of action in its manward aspect. God can make requirements of the heart. God being total, his law is total. Therefore, God can require something of both man's heart and act. But these implications are not within the scope of human law. Judges cannot deal with hatred in the heart or with lust, but only with action. And actions are within the scope of the law. Now, in Deuteronomy 27, 26, which is in the epilogue to the law, and we shall be dealing with the epilogue later on, we have a declaration that touches on the significance of the Tenth Commandment. Because, as we saw last time, the Tenth Commandment forbids all those things that Commandments 6 through 9 forbid. 
We cannot desire and expropriate our neighbor's life, his wife or property or his reputation. And we cannot do these things according to the Tenth Commandment, even if we do them under the seeming guise of the law. So the things which are outwardly legal are a violation of this commandment. The law, therefore, has an obligation to be concerned with more than the bare letter of the law. So, this curse says, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say Amen. Moffat's version renders it a curse on the man who will not give effect to the words of this law. It can also be rendered a curse on the man who will not put into force the words of this law. In other words, the law as a whole has to be put into force. And we cannot content ourselves with a bare letter of the law. We are all familiar with groups and organizations that proceed quite legally to do injustice. And then say you've had your day in court or in presbytery or in general convention or in general conference and everything was done legally. But injustice can be done illegally. And a man's property can, can be taken from him legally. Legality thus is not meeting the requirements of the Tenth Commandment. A man can legally maneuver and expropriate and take his neighbor's wife and his neighbor's property. But in so doing, he has broken the law of God, broken the Tenth Commandment. This factor of using the law to break the law was once important in the law. Today, it no longer is, although occasionally we do find a judge who will be so guided. Let us illustrate the matter so that we can understand why the Tenth Commandment and why this curse is so relevant to our time. Why it is wrong to desire and to take what properly belongs to our neighbor, whether we do it legally or illegally. And why there is a curse pronounced on all those who do not put into force the law, put it into force and is the fullness of its meaning. To illustrate, the law requires payment of debt. At one time in English law, failure to pay a debt was not only theft but perjury because you had sworn to repay. And so you broke the law to what? You robbed the man because you had no desire to repay. And you went into a debt fraudulently, 
perjuring yourself when you signed that contract, offering to repay. Clearly, a lender does need protection under the law. There are deadbeats all around us. However, in the name of protecting the lender, today many, many things have been written into the law which defraud the unwise and the ignorant. Contracts today present a wide variety of dangers. One person has written that it has reached the point where anyone signing a contract should have a lawyer because every contract today has so many pitfalls on both sides. The net result is the one with the most power can utilize contracts to defraud the other. Thus, the fine print of a contract may today include a waiver of defense so that whatever happens, you're guilty in advance. It may have a contingency liability. It may have a written notification clause, the confession of judgment so that you confess in advance to whatever they may accuse you of. It may have liability waivers. It may have pre-existing health condition clauses, all of which penalize the individual as against the corporation or company or the powerful party. Let's cite specific examples of this as given by Dean Carper in a study of the subject. I quote, Reluctant to sell the house they had lived in 35 years, a couple in an eastern state signed a contract for $2,500 to have it renovated. Unfortunately, three weeks later, their contractor died of a heart attack and the work was never begun. Soon afterward, the couple received notice from a finance company demanding monthly payments to fulfill the contract of $2,500. The couple wrote explaining the situation, made no payments, and thought no more about it. Two months later, the sheriff served papers notifying them that the finance company had foreclosed on the house and would put it up for auction unless they produced the cash to cover the contract plus legal fees. They sought help in every direction but could not raise the money. Thus, incredibly, to pay for a job never done, their house was auctioned off. Worth perhaps thirty thousand, it was sold to an officer of the finance company for twenty thousand. In another state, a fifty-six-year-old widow bought automobile insurance from a company recommended by her insurance agent. Her policy was canceled a year later with no explanation. Then, nearly three years later, she received a letter from a lawyer ordering her to pay the state. $291.49 because she was liable for claims against this now defunct company that had once insured her car. Out of her meager earnings, she was forced to pay a little every month until the entire amount was paid off. 
How are such things possible? The explanation is fine print. It appears on installment contracts, insurance policies, credit cards, on almost any legal document you sign. And as many have discovered, its potential for disaster cannot be underestimated. Unquote. In the days ahead, when bankruptcies increase, then some real trouble will begin as people pay the consequences of some of their contracts. Now, in the first of these cases, the couple had signed a contract with a waiver defense, unaware of it. So no matter what happened, they were liable and in the wrong, even though nothing had been done. And this is routine. In the second, the widow had signed with a company having contingency liability. As a result, she was, in effect, a part owner of the company and responsible for its debt. If you have insurance with any mutual company, you face the same kind of situation if anything develops. Virtually every contract today has pitfalls. As a result, the average person is helpless. He signs a contract because he doesn't have cash, or he uses a credit card because he doesn't have cash, and he has no idea of the pitfalls ahead of him. There have been all kinds of laws passed in the last 20, 30 years supposedly to protect the little man. But actually, at the same time, the liabilities of the little man have been vastly increased. Why? Because whereas 50 and 60 years ago, most buying was cash buying except for property, and then it was not a long-term arrangement, everything is credit today. And as a result, every kind of Opportunity has been opened up for every person to go into debt, every kind of protection afforded to the lender, so that inescapably the weaker of the two parties is in serious trouble. Now, this clearly violates It is injustice by law. And in all too many cases, there is serious exploitation. Moreover, in the contracts that were cited in the illustration, the state is clearly involved. And the business of the state, of course, is increasingly the business of the state and of powerful creditors against helpless and foolish people. When the state is under pressure and bans one loophole, it leaves room always for several new ones. And as a result, the situation has become progressively worse. There's no answer by reforming the state. 
the whole premise is wrong. We are in a credit economy, or more accurately, a debt economy, which is godless. And a people embarking on such a course cannot expect godly attitudes to prevail. And they can no more trust the state in such a situation which is party to such things than they can trust the thief. The reforms of a state which denies God are no more to be trusted than the reforms of a man with a gun in his hand robbing us of our money. A year ago when I was in New York, I was talking to the cab driver who took me to the hotel. And he was telling me of the many, many times he had been robbed by his passengers. And he said, you know, the thing that gets me is that some of them, after they've robbed me of all the money I have and take the cab as well to go wherever they want, some of them, not all, will give me car fare so that I can get home. And he said, you'd be surprised how big-hearted they feel when they do it. It's my money, but if they give me car fare home so that I can take the subway and get home, they're practically bursting with self-righteousness. They feel that they're being so good to me. Well, the reforms of a state which denies God are in about the same category. This is not to deny that even in a godless state there are not good men. St. Paul, when he was on trial, did find in the process some good men. But our concern here is with the basic direction, and when a country denies God, then it is denied the law of God, and it will use the law to defraud and to further fraud. It will use the law to enable men to seize and take that which is not theirs. And so it is only the occasional man who is not a party to this general trend. There was an interesting case in the Los Angeles papers recently of one judge in this area which is, who is, working against this abuse of the law. He is a small claims court judge, Judge M. Peter Castuprakis. And the small claims court was set up originally in order to help little people. Today, the small claims courts everywhere are means whereby corporations and stores can defraud the little people. Supposing there is a company with headquarters in Los Angeles. And it has claims against people up and down the state. What it will do is to file its 
claims in an L.A. small claims court for anyone from the Oregon to the Mexican border. And how can a man with a $150 claim against him who lives in Yuba City come down here to fight it? And this is the net result of it. For examples of what happens in this particular judge's court where he is trying to buck the whole trend. Listen to the following from an article by David Shaw, and I quote, A contractor's representative had entered into an agreement with a young married couple, and now the contractor was suing them. The contractor didn't do everything his representative said he'd do, the husband told the court. I can't be bound by what he told you, the contractor replied, pointing to his representative. He wasn't authorized to make any agreement. He isn't my agent. He... Wait a minute, fellas. Kostoprakis cut in. Don't try that tic-tac-toe routine with me. I've seen this man in here representing you before, and if you're going to tell me he isn't your authorized agent now, I'll go back through the records and avoid every judgment he's been involved in. End of quote. But this is a rare small claims court. You see, we cannot expect justice from men who have denied the principle of justice, God. And thus the court, the judges, the legal system are off base, with exception. Nor can the judges, the courts, and the legal system maintain their character if the character of the people is delinquent and degenerate. Courts and judges do not exist in a vacuum. They are part of the faith, of the culture, and of the standards of a people. And the moral standards of the people are the basic influence on the court. If the character of a nation has declined, the character of the court will not stand. The real subversion in every country is not by an enemy agent. It is by the people when their faith and their character is gone. Now, it is the thesis of revolutionists that what you have is an evil establishment and a conspiracy is against a great majority of innocent people. Now, this is not to deny that you have subversion and you have conspiracy, but this revolutionary principle posits that you have a great, broad, innocent majority as against an evil minority. And this revolutionary principle undergirds today radicalism and conservatism. The two are basically very close together in principle. They both overlook the fact that the real problem is sin, man's fallen nature. An orthodox Christian must deny that the cleavage exists between the people and the establishment. Instead, the moral cleavage is between all unregenerate men, great and small, right and left, 
one hand and the redeemed people of God on the other hand. This moral cleavage cannot be bridged by revolution or by the ballot box, but only by regeneration. with the ungodly, evil covetousness, desiring and then taking whatever they want is a way of life. They make it a principle of government and the result is socialism and a welfare economy. They will not be changed by law or by revolution, only by regeneration. The answer there is clearly he must be born again. And then on the basis of godly men to build a society in which no man is allowed to desire and to take that which belongs to his neighbor. Only a godly people can avoid the curse of the law and can confirm the words of this law that is put them into force because then the principle of the law is their new life their new nature let us pray almighty God our heavenly father we thank thee that thou hast called us to be thy people and the people of thy law and we pray, our Father, that thou wouldst use us as a principle of reconstruction in our day, that in us and through us law may be established, that men, women, and children may be reclaimed by thy grace and by thy word to be the people of the law, and that we may confirm, that we may put into force all the words of thy law. Bless us to this purpose, we beseech thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now on our lesson, first of all? Yes. In origin, yes. There is a direct relationship between the bankruptcy law and the law of the Sabbath because the law of the Sabbath specified that a man could not tie up his future indefinitely with debt. Therefore, debts were for a six-year period and were canceled on the seventh year. Now, over the generations, this law of the Sabbath and the limitation of debt to a six-year period has gradually been transformed until now you have the present bankruptcy laws, which say that a man is liable after going through bankruptcy for a six-year period. He cannot go into bankruptcy again until the seventh year. So it's quite a perversion of the bankruptcy law, of the biblical law. But it is a hangover of it. And today it has become a major form of evasion. 
Many of the people who go into bankruptcy today go into it not to go out of business, but to reorganize and to get rid of a certain segment of their debt. Another point in which the bankruptcy laws reflect still the old biblical law is this. In the Bible, property and land could not be taxed or taken. A man's home was his capital. And to this day in the bankruptcy laws, the home cannot be taken in satisfaction of debt. However, the government does for taxes. Yes. The question we have to raise increasingly is this. Can a man be antinomian and Christian? Yes. What we can say is that some people who are in this group are Christians because they haven't grown yet to realize the issue. But many of them we cannot call Christian because how can you deny God's law and say you belong to God? And increasingly the antinomians are pushing the boundaries here. They are actually asserting that man has no need for the law. It isn't relevant. It used to be they would say, well, you are... Uh, you do not kill, nor commit adultery, nor steal, because you're showing your gratitude to God by doing these things. But some of them are going a little further now, and they're saying you don't need these things now. In other words, their position is revealing itself, that they are not of God. If you love me, keep my commandments, our Lord said. It's that simple. Can you love God and deny his commandments? Yes. Antinomianism. Yes. Well, first of all, the term Middle Ages is a useless one. Uh, that term was born out of the humanist hatred of Christianity. And so they said everything between the classical pagan civilization of the antiquity and the Renaissance was a kind of middle or medieval period. It was an in-between period uh, for man, which didn't count. Now, the so-called medieval period includes a long, long period of a great variety. The earlier period used to be called the Dark Ages. Well, they 
no longer can call it that if they're informed, because as William Carroll Bark has pointed out, that was the period of the great frontier thinkers, the great Christian thinkers who laid down the foundations of Western civilization and liberty. It was a period of storm and stress and invasion and trouble, but it was a tremendously fertile period intellectually and also in terms of technology, invention, a great many inventions in that period. Then you had the period that followed it, a period of great stability, when there was a great deal of peace and prosperity throughout Europe, an era of Christian development and expansion. Then, the latter part of that period, you had the flowering again of Aristotelian thought, its reintroduction into Europe, and the progressive conversion of Europe to humanism. So there's a great deal of variety in that period. Now, you had in that period, at the earlier time, a strong emphasis on pietism on the part of the monastic movement. Some aspects of the monastic movement became anti-pietistic and practical and were the builders of the new Europe. Other elements were more and more withdrawn and pietistic. Well, finally, the monastic movement gave way and the regular, uh, or secular clergy, rather, that is, those who were parish pastors, took the lead, and pietism was pushed to the background. But with Aristotelianism, pietism again came to the fore, and mysticism. So the latter part of the so-called medieval period saw great flourishing of pietism. And the 18th century saw a revival of pietism, which has continued to the present. The implications of pietism have always been humanistic. It winds up in humanism. Yes. Evil is not a part of it in our sense of the word evil. That is just another form of saying middle. So, medieval and uh, middle are the same word. To the medieval period? Well, because it was Christian. To the extent that it was Christian, they hate it. Yes. And at first they regarded it as a period of darkness. But then they couldn't do away with the evidence of the tremendous medieval churches, the buildings, the construction, the knowledge of engineering, uh, a great deal of knowledge. And of course there's now some evidence coming to the fore that in medicine they actually had in that period uh, the use of opiates during surgery in order to be able to perform surgery without pain. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. 
Yes, and I can recall what happened to a great many people during the Depression when some of these mutual insurance companies folded and the people found that their homes, their bank accounts, their property was liable to satisfy the debts. Yes. Most people don't know what that term mutual means when they buy insurance. Yes, it's cheaper, and so they buy it without recognizing how costly it can be. Yes. When it was used under strict medical supervision, yes. Uh, that was permissible. One more question. I can't hear you. Yes. This is the kind of thing that is very prevalent today. Just a couple of things in the few remaining moments. First of all, tomorrow, Monday, August the 10th, the monthly Bible science meeting at Biola College at 7.45 p.m. in Marshburn Hall, Room 1, on the creation of Eve, a complete look at the biblical record and its scientific implications by Robert F. Kuntz. Ph.D. in entomology at Oregon State University. Then I'd like to tell you a little bit of the book I read this week, which uh, I think is very interesting in its implications. Some time ago I had mentioned to you the fact that, of course, in Crete, the excavations there have revealed that the ancient Minoan civilization was so advanced the palace there, a magnificent building, if you want to come and look at this picture of a fragment of it. And they found, of course, in the palace, evidences of things like running water, hot and cold running water, a sewage system, flush toilets. In fact, they've even found the toilet seat. And here, one uh, archaeologist has diagrammed thus far their excavations of the uh, sewage lines underneath the pallets. Now this was uh, about 2000 B.C. And of course the further back you get the more interesting the evidences of a high civilization. Well it's been my thesis that the world before the flood had a high degree of civilization. The men at that time lived 900 and more years. They had time to develop and to develop advanced ideas of technology. We also know that the dimensions of the ark revealed a knowledge of what was the best kind of proportion for a ship that was not rediscovered until in the last 150, 200 years. So, my thesis was that Noah had a great deal of technical know-how which was brought across the floods into the New World. Well, now a scholar 
Dr. Charles H. Hatswood has done an interesting work entitled Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings, Evidence of Advanced Civilization in the Ice Age. To give you an idea of Hatswood's qualifications, his previous work, Earth Shifting Crust, written in 58, carried a long introduction by Dr. Albert Einstein. So he's not a Johnny-come-lately nor an insignificant man. But what developed was this. A few years ago, an interesting map was turned up in the remains of Admiral Pyrrhus Riot, a Turkish admiral of the late 14th century and early or the late uh, 15th and early 16th century. In other words, the man who was a contemporary of Columbus. The map was not of his drawing. It was an ancient map, and he made comments about this map which he had inherited from ancient times. Well, the map shows a very startling thing. It showed... North and South America, which had not yet been explored quite accurately. It also showed Antarctica before ice formed there, when there was no ice, before the ice age, in other words. A great many other startling things. Well, the United States requested a copy of the map and got it, and it sat in Washington, and the Pentagon had someone working on it, and finally it was called to the attention of Dr. Hapgood, and he set a group of graduate students to working on it to try to understand some of the mathematical computations connected with the map. They also then went to work on a number of other ancient maps from China on through to the Western world. What they found was that long before the invention of the chronometer, men were able to compute longitude accurately in ancient times. They also found that their knowledge of the world was very surprising. Moreover, their technical know-how was really amazing, that the evidence was of a worldwide civilization that apparently spoke one language, very well developed in its technology, which had explored every part of the earth that had drawn very accurate maps thereof. As a matter of fact, he says, vast areas of ancient science have remained unknown to us, this fact has recently been revealed in a startling fashion by the discovery of a computer designed and built in ancient times. It was found by divers in the wreck of a Greek galley that had been sunk off the Greek island of Antikythera in, in the first century B.C., transported to the National Museum of, at Athens and carefully cleaned over a long period of time it was finally examined by Professor Gareth de Sola Price of Yale. He found it to be a planetarium, a machine to show the risings and settings of the known planets, and therefore very complicated. 
But what was particularly astonishing about it was the sophistication of the gearing system, which Dr. Price said was essentially modern. Now, an interesting point he also makes is, tying with our earlier comments about the medieval period, a considerable loss, that is, of science and of learning, seems to have occurred in the Renaissance itself. This was partly because of the invention of printing. Now, he goes on to say, in part, it was the contempt for anything that came before, and second, with printing, anything that was not printed was treated as obsolete and despised. But he goes on to say that the knowledge that these ancient maps show and their accuracy and the obvious fact that they had instruments and technology that we can't imagine. And when you add to this the fact that uh, we don't have equipment today that can move some of the stones and things that were moved in Mexico and in Egypt for the pyramids. We don't have equipment that can move them. Could not have been moved by hand or manual labor. He realized that there was apparently a tremendous ancient civilization. It's interesting, he says, that a tradition of a universal language seems to be common in ancient literature. In Genesis we read, of course, when the whole earth was of one language and one speech. But he feels this is a legend, although it's interesting that it appears in this legend. So, uh, obviously, before the Tower of Babel, man had reached a tremendous height of civilization. But he gradually began to lose, and with the Renaissance, the rebirth of paganism, he lost what had survived of it. Now, all of this rather frightens Dr. Hapgood because he says, we have now greater capacity for destruction in the age of the atom and hydrogen bomb. How much of what we have developed may not be lost in the years ahead. So this book, which on the whole is rather technical, and a lot of the computations and all are way beyond me as he demonstrates the accuracies of these maps, is nonetheless quite an interesting book. Charles H. Hathwood, Maps of the Ancient Sea King, Evidences of Advanced Civilization in the Ice Age. Well, let's bow our heads for the benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and all.